welcome to Pip Permaculture Podcast Number Nine, an absolute cracker which features Pip editor Robin Rosenfeld in conversation with permaculture co-originator David Holmgren. In the podcast, David discusses his forthcoming book, Retro Suburbia, which features in the next issue of Pip and will be launched at the Sustainable Living Festival and Urban Agriculture Forums later this month. As always, we hope you enjoy. Welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. Today we're talking with David Holmgren, the co-originator of the permaculture movement, futurist and author of many books including Permaculture One, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability and his latest book, Retro Suburbia. So welcome David and thanks for having a chat with us today. It's good to be talking. So retro suburbia. So could you explain to us what you mean by retro suburbia? Yeah, well, the full title of the book is Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. And uh, I think there's uh, a few elements to that. Retro suburbia is really a contraction in some ways of the idea that I've been talking about for a decade of retrofitting the suburbs. And retrofitting in that sense means what it did in the 1970s of adapting what we've already got to make it fit for purpose. I suppose it was a term especially strong in the United States during the energy crises of the 1970s and people insulating their houses and weather stripping and all that sort of uh, stuff. Mm. Uh, But I apply that across beyond just the built environment of, of houses, of retrofitting our houses, to retrofitting our gardens, the biological uh, field as well as the built field, and also retrofitting our behaviour. Mm. And in this case, that's the, uh, the big one. And there's a sort of another aspect to it, I suppose, in that retro has come to mean, you know, retro fashion, um, harking back to an earlier time of things more handmade or um, a greater degree of self-reliance. And that might be sort of derided as uh, superficial, uh, you know, hipster uh, fashion. Mm. But it represents an an underlying recognition uh, that a lot of the ways of modern life are actually... um, uh, both unsustainable and uncool. Yeah. <laughs> and that there is something cool about fixing up an old vehicle or, or sort of pairing um, mm. something or uh, recognising that a lot of the ways uh, many of us remember growing up had a lot more elements that we would like to recapture. Mm, definitely. Uh, so in that sense, it's sort of combining those two aspects of um, uh, retro. So a proactive thinking about the future and uh, a sort of a comfortable recreating of the best from the past. Mm. And so why suburbia? Like, I mean, often people sort of think, go and move to the country and have a tree change. And Yeah. But yeah. So people thinking about, a substantial change uh, from what's been fed to them by the media or society or their family, um, thinking in a more 
radical autonomous sense of wanting to break out and do something different, it's quite natural for people to say, I need to go somewhere else to do that. Mm. But psychologically, you know, uh, a fresh space um, uh, does that. And there's a long history in Australia, certainly going back um, to the Back to the Land movement of the 1970s, of leaving... Uh, the city and uh, and the suburbs and going to the country to do that, a greater sense of freedom, autonomy, uh, cheaper land, mm. uh, and away from the, the sort of the suffocating strictures, if you like, of consumer, consumer culture. And I think that's worked for a lot of people to a degree, but there's also been a very high failure rate or a sort of thing where a lot of people ended up finding they were in very foreign territory compared with what they were used to. Mm. That was socially, um, you know, more socially isolated. Yeah. Or just technically, you know, that people may have had experience of actually being um, home gardeners and then confronting you know, um, managing a dam water supply and keeping the kangaroos out yes. of the garden. And, and the Looking after a few acres of... Rural self-reliance. Yeah. More challenging than what people expected. So there's been a, a big learning cycle in that. And one of the, the learnings uh, has been a middle path. Gee, maybe country towns and, um, you know, even small villages where there's essentially a similar residential template mm. to what people grew up with in suburbia might be a sweet point. And by retro suburbia and by suburbia, I don't just mean the res- low-density residential areas of our capital cities. I actually mean a lot of suburbia that's ripe for retro suburbia is now in our regional mm. towns and um, even smaller um, villages like uh, where we live in in Hepburn Springs, yeah, uh, you know, uh, essentially, although we have a, a one hectare site, we're essentially in a residential street of sort of quarter acre blocks, um, mm. similar to what I grew up in in the suburbs um, of uh, Fremantle in Western Australia. So, suburbia is um, quite a sweet point in a lot of ways of that. Um, still the the benefits of the space, some space that provided by rural environments and the cluster of, of density of people and processes that really are the, the living, thriving aspect of urban life. Uh, and that's, of course, how suburbia was originally created to take it advantage uh, of that but it has a really bad rap (laughs) the image of suburbia is is very very negative and uh, uh, I think the the fact that most Australians um, live in suburbia or suburban like residential development is that that's that's the place that's going to be um, you know, a lot of adaption to our futures are actually going to happen. People mm. are not going to move on mass, or we're not going to build new super, super eco cities. You know, no. we're going to be faced 
the future, more or less where we are. Mm. The other thing I think is that people are often thinking about these issues, the future, a lot in relation to uh, children, especially young children, where they're going to grow up and what sort of environment. And, yeah, the fact is that an even higher proportion of children are raised in suburbia. So I think it's a great place um, to, to demonstrate uh, what is possible. But mm. also, when a house is a separate house on a separate parcel of land, it's possible to make retrofit modifications to a significant extent without getting the full permission and agreement and support from uh, the neighbours, uh, the council, society as a whole. Whereas mm. apartments, you know, you can't do very much before no. you have to get a lot of other parties aligned and on board with that. So I think that that degree of just physical separation and autonomy uh, makes the start of the process, you know, we can do a whole lot in a backyard, you know, even if others don't think it's, you know, that that's the greatest or highest priority to do. Mm. We can do it without the permission from the banks, you know. We can often do it with savings and our own um, uh, uh, assets. Uh, and, of course, in the book I talk about all of those things of navigating the you know, the legal and the social licence to do things as as well as we push the boundaries into territory where society's maybe not yet on a mass sense ready to go. Yeah, and, and there's just so much you can do with a small space. Like in a quarter of an acre or even an eighth, there's so much that you can be growing and productive space around the house that you know, is often overlooked. And I think when you have a huge parcel of land, you end up with all these other things that aren't actually productive that you've got to worry about. Like, you know, you mentioned dams and then you have pumps that you've got to fix and fences and, yeah, whereas, yeah, a small quarter-acre block where you can just put all your energy into those productive elements, I think, yeah, it's, it's a great option. Yeah, and that that's the experience of a uh, of a lot of people um, in, in a rural environment. In a lot of ways, horticulture, which is what you know, garden agriculture uh, is uh, mm. primarily growing vegetables and fruit and nut trees, and 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 then the associated uh, uses of, of small livestock, um, actually work well as a, a dense um, small scale system. And of course, in permaculture design, that's well been expressed through the, you know, ideas of zoning, the sort of zone one, zone two system that even though originally conceived as a, a little sort of cell around the house in a larger um, rural property, mm. it, it's that idea of confine that, keep that compact and where it actually works close to the house. Mm. Well, that's what confined sense a, a zone one zone two uh, system on a on a, um, uh, a suburban or small country town uh, residential block mm. and then you can look for your zone three four and five elsewhere you don't actually have to own that land and have it on your yeah. own property you yeah. can access that land in the surrounding area 
Exactly, and the public space, although retro suburbia, as the book concentrates on what you can do on that sort of privately owned domain, the last chapter in the biological field is called Beyond the Boundaries, and it explores all the things <coughs> of uh, public space and uh, gullies and semi-wild spaces that one can sort of be engaged in, in both through the sort of formal sense of things like community gardens and and other projects, but also the informal use of those spaces that, uh, you know, just emerge over time um, from, the, you know, the colonising of the street in a positive um, uh, sense uh, and, and the way that blends in a, in a, a neighbourhood, you know, development of uh, the community aspect, which is, of course, very complementary to what we can do on our um, private space. Mm. And it's not just the food that you can grow, but it's actually the community that you grow around that by actually working together with people to grow fruit trees and look after them or have a community garden rather than everyone kind of behind their own fence doing it on their own. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the big aspects we talk about in the, in the behaviour section of all, all the different strategies of of, of how you build both uh, the household resilience and, the, and uh, the community extension. One of the ideas that you only need, for example, for young children to have another uh, two or three families to what Sue Dennett says, create a new normal. Yeah, you know, we go around to their place and, you know, they've got sort of, you know, live in a similar way and, and that sort of creates like a, a new pattern. And what's ironic about that, I mean, with very young children, is, you know, yeah, you only need a, a few people because kids are incredibly adaptive and, and flexible as to what's normal or, uh, you know, it doesn't need the whole of society living like that for it to work. But to an extent, adults are like that too. And one of the things that's been found in some of the Sustainability Street and other projects and this was pointed out to me by Shani Graham and their place, Eco Burbia in Fremantle, is a, is one of the case studies in the book. Mm. And she, she and uh, her partner, Tim Darby, were involved uh, just a few streets away uh, some years ago in uh, where they lived then in Holbert Street, which became a, a sort of famous sort of sustainability-type street that mm. just ad hoc, uh, you know, grew of its own accord. And Shani said that when about 20% of the people in the street were sort of actively engaged in the sort of activities, that the other 80% started to feel that they themselves were in the minority. Yeah, yeah, right. And so it doesn't actually take even, even with adults, it doesn't take everyone getting on board in an area with some creative, innovative uh, thing that people are positively engaged in for others to feel that, firstly, it's acceptable, you know, it's not weird, mm. and, and then getting to a point of, oh, maybe I should be doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that, I think, is a really important point about this sense of can you do this in isolation and that thing of you don't mean many other like-minded people. And that, that other thing about being flexible 
about uh, understanding the commonalities that we all have, even with neighbours and other people who might seem to have completely different values, mm. that from the retro-suburban perspective, <clears throat> there's always something that you can develop in in common, some little exchange or thing that connects people together. And I think it was um, Shannon Hayes in um, the book Radical Homemakers mm. about the great political divides in America, uh, how that country is becoming divided. But when people are living doing ordinary domestic things, you find actually we all have quite a lot in common. Yeah, yeah. And often, I mean, I've heard you talk about this idea before that, you know, some people might think, oh, does it really matter if I do this? Is it really making a difference in the world? That actually just by doing it and being an example that other people might see and then be attracted to, that that actually is, makes it a much stronger action and it has more, a lot of effect because other people then get inspired by what you're doing and see that, oh, that, that is a good way to live. Yeah, well, I think it's at a number of levels. The first one is we've always taken the approach, oh, this is just the way we want to live because this is best for us. This yeah. is in, in self-interest. Yeah. This is actually I'm just enjoying this more this way. So this is not some sort of penance that we yeah, yeah. Uh, do for our past environmental sins. Okay. There's plenty of <laughs> environmental sins or karma that we are a burden that we are carrying but we don't, that doesn't need to be a primary motivation for mm. so many strategies in retro suburbia. But then in terms of thinking about does this make a difference, the, the first level is effectively reducing one's own uh, ecological footprint, that living, having a more home-based lifestyle and sharing that house with more people, more people living together, is one of the most powerful and effective ways to reduce our ecological footprint. Mm. More significant than uh, buying solar panels or, um, you know, uh, an electric car or, or uh, you know, um, simple things like uh, changing the light bulbs. Mm. Yeah. Just actually restarting the household and community non-monetary economy and doing more things in that shared way at home is just incredibly resource efficient. Mm. And it's no accident that in all previous societies before, you know, one supercharged by fossil fuel, a large amount of the economically productive activity of society was done not in the monetary economy but in the household and community non-monetary economies. Mm. Because they're more efficient. At, and you don't need money to be part of it. You can yeah, just yeah. do it. And and it just actually uses less resources. And certainly the money issue is what triggers in every economic downturn in history the way people uh, survive and even thrive, like through the, uh, the, the Great Depression in the, in the 1930s in Australia or in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, People restart all those household and community mm. economies because, yeah, you can't necessarily um, pay for your dental treatment that way, 
but you can grow some vegetables. You can, you know, fix up something that you would otherwise mm. have been to do and have to pay someone else to do and actually learn those skills and cooperation and trading and uh, and bartering. And, and, of course, the biggest expression of that is what happens is that average household size, the number of people living together under, the, uh, under a roof, actually increases mm. going down. So we, we shift back to, you know, more people living together. And that commonly is just, you know, the extended family, um, aged um, parents moving in with adult children or, you know, teenagers not... Uh, uh, you know, leaving home, mm. uh, but it's also, of course, shared shared households of people who are not uh, related, and we can already see that happening um, in, in countries with the you know the ridiculous real estate prices and mm. that now exist. That a lot of the strategies in retro suburbia are actually people are finding adaptive in the current. Um, economy, but in the same <clears throat> way, you see um, when that uh, bubble bursts and, and we have uh, massive economic contraction, those same strategies become really, you know, strongly adaptive and, and um, uh, successful as a way of adapting. But, of course, the reality is that those who do it from a positive point of view will experience it those harder times a lot more positive than those who would who do it under forced um, uh, circumstances and without necessarily the skills or or forward planning mm. so there's definitely that element in retro suburbia of thinking proactively about the future and hedging bets and and doing the things that, um, you know, have got win-win outcomes, um, you know, whatever the future holds. Because, mm. yeah, not only is it might be more economical to live together and but it makes life a lot easier if you can actually be sharing the workload of, you know, whether it's growing food or raising kids or whatever it is, cooking. If there's multiple people, adults there, to all work together... Yeah, it reduces the workload a lot. Yeah, well, there's an efficiency, obviously, in that, you know, people know that it's, you know, uh, less work to cook for um, six people. It's not much more work to cook for four or six people than it is to cook for two. Yeah. Um, type of efficiency. And then there's the um, the shared work that regular tasks, um, even if that's someone's prime responsibility, there's a backup person you know, mm. who sort of takes over. And and then the other aspect is specialisation. You know, we're so obsessed with extreme specialisation in the monetary economy, everything's so specialised to the point it's, like, completely unsustainable mm-hmm. and we need to shift back to being more generalists. But, of course, if you're a household of one person um, and you're interested in self-reliance, then you're it. You're going to have a hard time. And and it's hard to be expert in everything. So um, and also just the different demeanour or sort of personality type. You know, I often used to say mm. in, in consultancy, 
thinking of, uh, is this person a machinery and technology person, a plant person, an animal person, or a people person? Yeah, um, yeah. Or little sort of boxes. And, you know, you really want a mix of those in a, in a household uh, yeah. ideal. Um, yeah, because some people love one area of it and want to yeah. spend all their time doing it and they're great at it, and but they're terrible at something else. And Yeah, you, you don't want someone looking after the, the car and the... And the and the malt who just you know <laughs> breaks everything and <laughs> has you know, no idea doesn't put water you know <laughs> in, the, in the radiator and and you don't want someone sort of responsible for looking after the chalks you know that doesn't actually have any any empathetic connection with animals yeah you know uh, so obviously you know it's good for us all to be um, uh, more generalists and a lot of Permaculture and retro suburbia is about becoming more generally uh, skilled, but it also helps not to have to do everything. Yeah. So that yeah. allowing the the household to develop into different areas of responsibility. I think that's also really important with children because what retro suburban self reliance opens up is a huge number of um, effectively ecological niches that children can move into that, um, you know, well, no one's doing um, that. Uh, I can become the expert in that. And so rather than, you know, being just apprenticed to the parent or other adult, children can sort of move into their own territory and make some mistakes and become actually the expert in that area. Mm. And I think it's an incredibly important uh, growth and education opportunity that comes with a really diverse and vibrant um, household economy because there's always another layer, another, you know, if you like, micro-enterprise mm. uh, that added to the system. Mm. Definitely. So um, in the book you talk about the different fields the built biological and behavioural. Do you want to just expand a bit on those different areas and what people can do in those areas? Yeah. So obviously with the retrofitting, we often think of it in relation to the, the, the built environment and retrofitting houses to make them more energy efficient is, is you know, perhaps the sort of most obvious thing that people think about. And sometimes that's in sort of real basic ways like uh, insulation and draft stripping, but it can also be in ways that are very emblematic of retro suburbia of things like an attached passive solar greenhouse on the north side of a, uh, a building as a way of making a house that doesn't capture much in the way of sun uh, to one that is really um, a self-heating uh, house in... Um, in cooler winter climates and a growing environment that can expand the productivity of the, the, the garden systems. So I, that's one of my sort of favourite sort of patterns, I suppose, and that can go with a lot of the pattern understanding that's in the book, such as um, one of the patterns is south-facing to the street, which seems counterintuitive because we like to think of, you know, uh, passive solar houses are north-facing houses. Mm. You know, 
they've got more windows on whatever's the front of the house and therefore that gets the sun in, etc. But often those houses um, have a big veranda or porch on the front which mm. acts, blocks the winter sun coming in and sometimes that same house might have just a little eave on the on the into the backyard where the bedrooms and the laundry and the bathroom and the outside door perfect place to actually put an attached greenhouse mm. so if it is south facing to the street that means you know the backyard is uh, you know it's it's face, it's on the north side yeah and often the living area is down the back of the house onto the garden so you want that to be facing north as well reorients the whole sort of living space out into the, the garden and the connection to mm. the um, And there's some other little, um, you know, less obvious things that if you look at the regulatory impediments to modifying the front of the house, uh, in some areas they can be completely prohibited because of heritage restrictions. Yeah. And in another under-the-radar sense, which I openly talk about in Retro Suburbia, <laughs> You know, an attachment on the back of the house, if the neighbours are cool with it, is probably, you know, not a problem uh, to the council, whereas actually a big structure, you know, on the front of the house mm. might be seen by both the neighbours and consequently the council as, well, you know, that needed approval or um, and lots of regulatory stuff that inhibits mm. from doing things. So yeah. similar, there's a, a, a lot of options for people um, doing this sort of thing. We see a very common pattern that we call in the book um, old sheds and other down market assets. Yeah. <laughs> but where you've got an old shed, uh, it's an existing building and you can renovate that effectively um, by just modifying it internally and it can become, you know, an outside bedroom for a, um, uh, a teenager who needs a bit of uh, space and independence or mm. um, uh, a workplace for, you know, people who are doing um, home-based livelihoods but need to um, some private space to get away from the mm. kids or it, or it might just be uh, modification into uh, upgrading it uh, to a better version of what it was, you know, a, mm. a gutted and, and workspace. Well, so, we've done that here with um, an old barn that we had. It's now the PIP offices. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. We've got a that's whole separate right. space to work from, but it's still on the yeah. same property and didn't cost any much money to do it. Yep. So those those are some of the, the, the built changes, but I also look at uh, wood heating, which I'm sort of very passionate about as mm. a sustainable and... Uh, uh, appropriate um, energy source that's not much talked about in mainstream sustainability. And, of course, all the water, grey water, uh, water harvesting and reuse aspects, which, you know, have been developed to quite a significant degree, but we've got some, you know, good designs for sort of low-tech responses to grey water rather mm. than a lot of the off-the-shelf manufactured plastic complex things that um, uh, people might be using for, for grey water uh, reuse. So we're always focusing on how these things can be done in a low-tech way and in a way that uh, 
is is low cost and mm. adverse environmental impact. Because of course, when we buy lots of stuff to do something from an environmental point of view, well, that's another environmental mm. cost. Where yeah. I'm the line. So they're really the you know the the spectrum of the built stuff, but it also includes how you actually retrofit the house for shared living. And another big one is retrofitting a house to make it more efficient for food processing, preservation and storage. Mm, yeah. Because a lot of us going into that household self-reliance pretty quickly run up against, oh, we haven't got enough cupboard space, we yeah, haven't yeah. got dual storage space, all of those uh, sorts of things. So um, including, of course, our famous cool cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in our house and I point out that, you know, houses up on stumps off the ground can be retrofitted to make a cool cupboard a lot easier than a house on a concrete slab. Mm. So it's these different structures of, of houses of identifying what your own place is, what its assets and limitations are, and also looking at that in terms of where we are looking to buy or move to um, different places that may have the the right potentials that we're looking for. Mm. So we've actually put that together in a, um, a retro suburbia real estate um, assessment tool. Mm, that, sort of that looks great. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, mostly focused on the, the built uh, environment cause, and the, you know, the nature of the, the general uh, patterns, like I was saying, you know, south-facing to the street, those things are sort of like uh, locked that you inherit uh, with a yeah, property. Yeah, you can't really change them. Change that. Uh, whereas as we move into the biological, we've got a lot more flexibility to change mm. things, but there's still some big issues. You know, where are the big trees that dominate the site? Do they provide useful shade or shade at the wrong time of the year? Are their roots, you know, really competing with the, you know, potential for food gardening? Mm. Um, and, and what are the responses to those big structural um, elements. And then when you move into the biological, uh, the behavioural, of course, that's in a way where we have the greatest flexibility because humans are incredibly flexible about potential, about changing the way we respond to our environment. So there's a sort of a gradation, you know, from that, the more fixed things through to the things we can flexibly respond to and you know in the biological I suppose yeah going into the biological so what explain what you mean by that yeah so you know if we think of that as the living soil um, uh, plants and animals that really um, uh, the essence of what should be a productive garden agriculture system that provides a whole lot of the other benefits and environmental services that are um, that a natural uh, outdoor space should provide uh, outdoor living space and you know connection to nature um, you know biodiversity of, uh, of life um, microclimate shelter to the house uh, you know play space for kids all, all of those things are sort of really uh, in a lot of ways, a, a creation of how we manage the biological um, elements. So we can think of something like a, you know, a, a, 
a permablitz garden makeover as being retrofitting that biological mm. uh, domain. And sometimes, you know, in the book we include, you know, quite radical and even uh, confronting aspects to that, that in a lot of places you need a logging operation to you know, log the, sub- the leafy s- suburbs to allow more sunlight in mm. the solar gain to houses um, and to be able to grow food because mm. big, huge trees, especially evergreen trees like eucalypts and, mm. and pines, uh, are largely incompatible with you know, highly productive um, uh, garden agriculture, mm. whereas those trees, at least in a in um, the sort of cooler temperate climates where our book is focused in terms of examples, um, deciduous trees make a lot more sense, and especially if, of course, those are food-producing trees. Yeah, it can feel um, counterintuitive to go and chop down a tree to grow more food, but sometimes it's necessary when you've got those big eucalypts sucking up all the moisture and shading the site. Yeah, well, Richard Telford's uh, fantastic case study, which is one of the case studies in the book, Abdallah House, their very small residential block in Seymour in central Victoria had a a little house that probably could be called a hovel (laughs) in terrible condition and one huge red gum tree. Mm. And both of those needed to be taken down and they were both... um, pulled apart effectively and all of the contents completely reused. Mm. So the red gum uh, was sawn up with a, a portable sawmill on site and incorporated into the building and all of the wood and even the, you know, the branches all became uh, firewood supply for, for many years. So that respectful reuse, uh, I think, mm. is, is part of that process when we do need to... Uh, uh, take down large trees. Um, and, yeah, in the book we look at all the different options of high pruning to let the sun in, uh, root pruning, uh, other strategies like uh, wicking beds and ways that we can say maybe we can work with that tree, work creatively uh, to get them, you know, maintain the benefits and assets mm. that it provides um, and there's not just a single option of, oh, we've got to take those uh, mm. down. So, yeah, because that's a, a really quite complex issue. But, you know, the the big focus of that, uh, of that field is really how do we efficiently uh, grow food at that uh, garden scale? What are the things that are worth allocating space to and what are the methods? And one of the frames I use in it is to have a spectrum of of garden agriculture from sort of biointensive gardening at one end of the scale mm. where everything's very intensively managed and not much tolerance uh, for weeds and very dense rotational planting and the more wild mixed garden with self-sown plants, a lot of uh, weeds and uh, lower input. And what is the balance between those two approaches and how do they work together at the garden scale? Mm. So, and it can depend on your personality too. I mean, some yeah, people... it depends on, on personality and, and it depends on how much space you've got because mm. the less space you've got, the more the very intensive managed 
um, approach gives best value and return from that. Mm. But if you have more space and less time, then having things more <laughs> maintaining and uh, elements of the semi-wild yeah. uh, more sense. Sounds like my garden. <laughs> semi-wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you talk about the behavioural field. So what sort of things are you talking about in that section? Yeah, well, we start with the, the big picture stuff in the same way that each each the first chapter in each field really begins with the, the big organising frameworks for the field, and that's thinking of the the range of options there are in the way we live. So we have, uh, you know, extended family household. Uh, we have household landlord where you, you know, take in boarders. Uh, then there's a sort of variant of that, the neighbourhood landlord where you might own the place next door and develop those sort of relationships. Uh, the shared household um, uh, and shared rental households. Mm. Uh, Right through to, you know, even exploring the the more fringe things of uh, studio living and squatting, you know, which mm. might not be the, the essence of the most um, sustainable or, um, uh, you know, resilient um, solutions, but also looking at how the complementary lifestyles of the, um, the traveller lifestyles complement those who are fixed and in place and like this relationship between uh, woofers and owners and other volunteer um, uh, approaches. Strategies like moving to your preferred area and just renting and finding your connections before you actually make the big step for, um, uh, of buying. Mm. So different different levels at, at, at looking at the different options for household form. Uh, so that's really important. And then we just go across the areas of our basic behaviours and habits and how the process of retrofitting, identifying what is about our habits. And it may be things like getting up late and living a nocturnal lifestyle that We've, that's been our pattern and we really want to change that to more a daylight um, lifestyle. And that becomes necessary for many people when they have children uh, and <laughs> shift into that for the health of the children and the needs yeah. of, of the very young. But it's also part of a, a sustainability and resilience shift. So looking at all those sorts of aspects and then the the work um, and how work from home and uh, roles in the household, all of those uh, tricky issues, even the difficult subject uh, and controversial subject of gender and the degree to which roles may or may not be um, uh, reflect um, traditional gender roles mm. through to finance and all of those difficult areas of what we should do with savings and um, uh, the whole issue of, uh, of debt, uh, raising self-reliant and resilient children, uh, sustainable and sustaining diet, another really difficult mm. huge area. So all of these areas obviously sort of like 
very big open-ended subjects and try and bring the sort of retro-suburban uh, lens that's based on here are the patterns that have worked for people doing th this sort of thing and they might work for you, they mm. might be uh, useful, rather than trying to present, a, you know, an exact uh, prescription. Uh, yeah, because it depends. Everyone's different and they've got different it, Everyone's different. Things that are going on. Right, varied. And one of the ways we managed to sort of narrow that down was to do something that's almost never done in the publishing world mm. uh, is have a, a local geographic focus because at least you can then eliminate some of the variables by saying, oh, well, you know, if you're on a tropical island somewhere, you know, none of this is relevant, you should do this. Because the book has a focus in temperate climate Australia and mostly in uh, Victoria and Melbourne and regional towns and then sort of reaching out across sort of southern Australia and a little bit sort of uh, north, uh, it, it manages to sort of limit the scope a bit. Mm. And also in, a, in an Australian sort of cultural sense by it being a book focused on Australia, you know, that some of the things might, some of the strategies might not make so much sense if you're in, um, you know, a struggle town in the, the UK or let alone somewhere like Greece mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, where, you know, different patterns and different solutions will um, uh, make more sense. So it allows so, you to kind of focus in and give some specific examples that yeah, people can then adapt if they need to to their own Well, firstly, situation. we're unashamedly um, saying make it as local as possible and as people move away from that locality, it's their responsibility and creativity to say how do I uh, adapt this? Mm. Um, you know, and... You know, that's part of our commitment to the local and, uh, you know, drawing on the fantastic examples that we happen to know about um, because of those um, uh, local connections. But, of course, there's already the interest <laughs> because permaculture exists in a network world of, mm. um, okay, where's the, um, uh, the retro suburbia edition for... <laughs> The United States or <laughs> yeah. uh, Germany or... Um... Come on, get cracking, next book. <laughs> <laughs> so if, the, if we do have the success at, at the local, then we certainly see that, that that's possibility with partnering with mm. other permaculture authors in other places to produce, a, you know, a local um, editions for, you know, that place, which would all have local examples, mm. uh, rather than our examples here. Because that's part of the book, isn't it, that you look at case studies so that you can, people can yeah. actually see how it works yeah, when it's so implemented. There's, a, there's four case studies in the, in the book and they're part of a larger cohort of um, more than 12 case studies now that are on the Retro Suburbia website and we're hoping to expand that as more people uh, read the book and say, oh, yeah, that's what we've been doing for mm. And, yeah, we've got all these photos and this is what we do and that we're hoping more people will come forward mm. and we can add more 
um, case studies to the website to create that greater diversity that, uh, yes, it's, there's not just one recipe uh, in this. And even in the, the case studies in the book, um, you know, three of them are uh, owner-occupiers. You know, one is a, a share house uh, renting. Mm. Um, and uh, they're all different, you know. Um, uh, some of them are relatively inner-city, very small blocks. Others are at the scale of the, the quarter-acre uh, block. You know, some were, you know, uh, lo relatively low-cost, um, you know, regional town uh, ones and uh, Eco Burbia over in Fremantle because mm. of where it's located. Yeah, it's tipping a great into example. That, uh, beyond the, you know, that uh, staggering figure of a uh, million dollars for a... <laughs> mm, crazy. ...quarter-acre block and a house uh, type of um, uh, real estate. But then seeing the the way in which they respond to that with building semi-autonomous uh, shared rooms and having a, a five or six um, adults effectively uh, sharing uh, a property that, you know, makes good use of, of that, mm. that real estate, you know, a very desirable and uh, area with sort of walkable, um, you know, uh, assets and resources nearby. Mm. So... How, if retro suburbia took off and all the, everyone got on board, and how would you see the suburbs, whatever form of suburb they are, say in 2020? How would you, what's your vision? How would you like to see it all play out? Well, I suppose these things, uh, short of um, you know catastrophic crisis, these things change relatively slowly. But I imagine there will be clusters or neighbourhoods and whole suburbs that will tend to be attractors of this sort of change. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll get uh, uh, different uh, models developing um, of, uh, of suburbs. Um, a greater diversity in that sense uh, will happen. And some of that will be through negative processes happening in the economy and greater disparity of wealth and all, all sorts of things that are sort of where we lose some of what has been good aspects of Australian society, just because, of, not because of uh, the retro suburbia strategies, but because of the larger economic um, uh, context. But that will also provide this opportunity for um, uh, creative solutions. And I, I see that... Um, uh, when there's a, a critical mass of about 20 to 30 percent of people in a neighbourhood who are where there's maybe you know one person um, at least one adult is mostly home based or people part time livelihood and people are actively doing things um, on their properties rather than it just being a dormitory suburb mm. where they sleep. Uh, that active engagement um, and doing things productively and uh, providing for more of their needs in that way, that you naturally get the emergence of a lo both local community networks and also economic networks of exchange. And uh, I think that's 
one of the ways that often people thinking about this parallel economies and um, uh, community development uh, often tend to underestimate the, the importance of having a, a critical mass of in-place resilient households strongly connected to that place and neighbourhood. So when that gets going, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for for um, uh, micro businesses and including you know children starting their own little uh, micro businesses mm. where the suburban landscape becomes sort of like a nursery for starting new economic activity. Mm. So people find that they're really good at, at whether it's fermenting or actually they've become a backyard mechanic, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, there's a, a huge range of things that that uh, can emerge in that way. So a new economy starts to uh, develop. And at the end of Retro Suburbia, we, we actually talk about a, um, a neighbourhood of, um, um, you know, about 700 people and what the different patterns through the book, the different templates, how many of those there would be, you know, how many places where there's um, uh, there's shared households, how many places that have got milking goats in the backyard, mm. uh, you know, how many people have got, you know, home-based livelihoods, how many households don't have um, a car, you know, that they've just got bicycle transport. So we tried to sort of paint that picture uh, in a way that's not some instantaneous, you know, conversion but a, a creative adaption mm. and, uh, I think that uh, you know uh, that vision is certainly something that is attractive to people that what they might be doing in their place is a contributing step towards that which seems a lot more achievable than mm. if I reduce my greenhouse gas emissions will that give us a better climate in the future, and that feels by itself in isolation a bit of a, a dismal task. Mm. Uh, whereas when we look at it through the the, uh, the self-reliance lens and building neighbourhood connection, all those things seem much more possible, and they're still often the most powerful way where we can contribute to that um, uh, both reducing greenhouse gas emissions and increasing resilience to the inevitable climate change that we're now facing. Mm, and often a more enjoyable way to live too. Yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> primary thing that is not much use in, in essentially an affluent society um, trying to develop a, a mass movement based on uh, atonement and mm. sins for the <laughs> no. Those situations can come about when when people are actually facing catastrophic realities that that they can recognise were the result of of past actions. Uh, but it certainly um, doesn't uh, make sense as a way to advocate for change at the moment. And it's frankly, it's never been uh, the motivation. Uh, for me personally, in everything I've done through my life with permaculture, it's always come from 
this is a better way to live. Mm, yeah. and, uh, really, I can remember um, travelling when I was uh, 18 and um, staying in Sydney at the time in the southern suburbs and commuting through to a job on the north side of Sydney just as a break in my round Australia hitchhiking. And I can remember sitting on the train in, in Central Station looking across at all the other people in the trains reading their Sydney Morning Herald, uh, commuting to work, and I remember thinking, I am never, ever going to live <laughs> this. And I never have. And you haven't, have you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and so it, it's not just an accident. It's, no, this is actually uh, a better way to live. Mm, definitely. Here, here. <laughs> So if people want to find out more about the book and um, more about what they can do, there, there is the book but there's also the website. So what's the website? Where can people find out more? Yeah, so retrosuburbia.com is a website that is much more than just, you know, the standard promotional website for uh, a book which publishers or authors uh, put up. Um, we've been running it now for uh, more than a year um, and colleague uh, Richard Telford, who uh, did the beautiful uh, layout of the book um, and runs our collaborative business, um, uh, Permaculture Principles, uh, um, and designed the permacultureprinciples.com uh, website. He developed the Retro Suburbia website and it now has a, a new form. And the big thing that's there is is this growing group of, uh, of case studies. Uh, 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 but there's also a whole lot of resources, uh, including a lot of my essays that have been written that are complementary or related to the book. Mm. And um, also my Aussie Street presentation, which is uh, all the early versions of it. Um, we're working on new versions of that uh, at the moment, uh, which is... You know, my story of the ordinary Australian street from the 1950s through to the, um, the 2020s second great depression. Mm. Uh, and it's a, a positive story of, of how people survive and thrive through those changes. And that's very much a sort of an integrated story in the book. So that the website in, includes, um, as I said, uh, essays I've written um, one of them called Feeding Retro Suburbia is sort of fleshes out how retro suburbia is a contribution to a, a larger bioregional uh, parallel food system to the, the, the current centralised uh, food system. And resources like the Retro Suburban Real Estate um, uh, Evaluation Tool, we're developing that as a downloadable spreadsheet um, that people can sort of use to um, help assess their place. And over time, we want to sort of add resources uh, to that and that it's stimulating really a, a retro-suburban community. So there's the retro-suburbia uh, community Facebook uh, page that we hope as the book uh, gets going will sort of attract in... Uh, a community discussion and mm. exchange uh, uh, about these uh, things. And our aim is to not, for that to not be some sort of exclusive thing, but it actually is complementing and 
supporting all of the activities that are already going on in neighbourhoods and communities from permacult local permaculture groups, transition towns groups, uh, uh, more mainstream sustainability street projects and council uh, programs that are you know, encouraging various aspects of what we could call uh, retro suburbia. There's also what comes from that is the events that are that are going on because more than just a sort of a public speaking tour to promote the book, we're rolling out events initially in Melbourne and regional towns in uh, Victoria, partnering with councils to um, highlight examples that are happening in in their area and resources that are available as uh, people want to get more into that. And, of course, that's a great opportunity uh, for uh, permaculture teachers and activists to um, have more people, you know, come and take advantage of their skills and resources and, mm. and than than might have been... Uh, attractive in the in the past, so we'll be, you know, encouraging all of those um, uh, things to be listed in in different ways. Obviously, our the degree to which we can support the back end of that sort of website process will depend a lot on how successful the book. Uh, yeah. but, uh, we're certainly aiming to make that a, a, a lively and ongoing and constantly improving resource. Mm. Oh, it sounds very exciting. Big changes ahead. Yeah, well, I think the time is right. There's mm. a, a, lot of, a lot of people doing things uh, maybe quietly, even under the radar, yeah. that, um, you know, that they don't necessarily, um, you know, aren't uh, upfront about. And there's a number of reasons for that. People are just too busy getting on with doing stuff. But it's also that they often don't think, oh, what I'm doing is very significant. Mm. And when this book will actually sort of be a celebration uh, for a lot of people who, yeah, I'm doing that mm. and, and be out there upfront about it. And that will sort of create a sense of it for a whole lot of other people. Oh, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a a cool thing to get into rather than maybe a strange thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, how we, how we make that new normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a good start. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot for having a chat today, David. And, yeah, I suggest to everyone to get a copy of the book and check out the website. You have been listening to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. To find out more about Retro Suburbia, pick up the latest copy of Pip Magazine by subscribing at our website or catch David in person speaking at the Sustainable Living Festival and in conversation with the magnificent Mariam Issa at the Urban Agriculture Forum in Melbourne later this February 2018. To find out more about Pip Magazine, visit www.pipmagazine.com.au Follow us on Facebook or Instagram or subscribe to our podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes.